trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I guess I'm going to have to start throwing a standard disclaimer in at the beginning of every show. Warning, this program contains blatant violations of the official narrative. In other words, uh, yeah, you're going to be at odds with people if you start thinking clearly and independently. If you start questioning what you are being told and start to believe your lying eyes and ears rather than uh, whatever you're being told is uh, the official case. Never mind. Look away, citizen. Look away. There's nothing to see here especially around Hunter Biden's laptop. Actually, we're going to be talking a little bit about that later on in the show. Let me start, though, by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. I've also provided links to each one of these sponsors in my show notes which you can access at, are you ready for this? TheBrianHydeShow.com. So I don't know if you have seen uh, the, I'm trying to remember the name of the show now. I think it's called The Social Network. It's it's a, a feature length movie talking about how social media affects us. And I know some people may say, well, it's an interesting conspiracy theory that it might be able to manipulate people or not. It's a very well done show. And I don't think it necessarily is done from a, you know, conservative point of view. I thought it very accurately reflected, at least when I watched it a few months ago, how easily manipulated we can be due to how social media understands our preferences, what we click on that we like, what we share, um, the, the kinds of friends that we gravitate towards. All of that information is collected. All of it is stored, and the algorithm basically tells us or or feeds to us what we want to hear. And so it can reward us. And yes, we do get a little dopamine release when somebody likes what we've posted or they share it or they comment on it. That gives us a reward. Hey, I'm being noticed. But could there be a truly nefarious side to all of this social media? Well, Paul Rosenberg has an essay that I think is worth your consideration. Because he actually takes it, he cuts right to the chase here. He says, is social media basically a big mind parasite that has captured the cognitive uh, abilities of, of most of the human population or a big chunk of the human population? His take is that social media hijacks the subconscious. And this is going to be an unpopular opinion to some people, particularly those who really spend a lot of time on social media. How do I know this? Because I'm uncomfortable, because I spend a lot of time on social media, even though I realize there's there's risk and I realize there's manipulation. I'm still there. I think we might even safely call it an addiction, but listen to how he describes this. Paul Rosenberg says anything that affects the subconscious minds of billions of people on a daily basis is a very serious thing. And that's precisely what has happened over the past decade as social media captured a large percentage of human cognition. Now, he says, look, I'm aware, I'm very well aware that I'm running against the stream 
In fact, he says, uh, to be honest about it, my voice is a small and largely unwanted voice. Still, someone needs to say these things, and the truth is that social media directly replaces natural subconscious functions. Or, perhaps more accurately, it displaces subconscious operations and acts in their place. And he says, and that is very, very dangerous. So as we go through this, Paul Rosenberg says, please understand that I'm not saying these things precisely, simply because no one knows how to say them precisely. Any expert on the subject could be attacked by a half dozen contrary experts, each with their own theory of the unconscious. So he says, those of you who need to find fault, you can proceed as you must. He says, I'm doing my job all the same because fear of the critic spawns self-censorship, and we very much need to address this. So, what social media does, Paul Rosenberg writes, I cannot affix a percentage to how much social media displaces our inborn subconscious minds because no one knows how to measure such things. But that it does displace the human subconscious is easy to establish. So, here, <coughs> excuse me, here briefly is some direct support. He says, without a doubt, our subconscious minds filter our sensory inputs delivering only a fraction of them to our conscious minds. Also, without a doubt, social media does the same thing, sifting through all the inputs in its system which double, counteract, or displace a large number of our own sensory inputs and delivering to the user those inputs which serve the system's needs. He says our subconscious minds search our internal data banks for relevant memories, Social media does the same thing, even displacing human operations and monetizing them. Our subconscious minds trigger involuntary reactions like disgust, outrage, and revulsion. Social media hijacks this process and pulls such reactions out of its users rather than allowing them to form naturally. I think he has a point on this one. He says our subconscious minds recognize this and process impressions of status. Advertising has long monetized this, but social media monitors the user's reactions and triggers very precisely, accelerating and directing the process. Social media corporations have employed and do employ a large number of psychologists and similar professionals precisely to develop routines to increase user engagement. He says we might as well be honest and call it addiction, thus increasing their profits. More or less, all of this involves subconscious vulnerabilities. If not, these companies would simply reason with their users, convincing them to engage more. In other words, if you're not trying to convince people, you're trying to hijack their instincts, a.k.a. their subconscious operations. More than 10 years ago, Facebook ran an experiment on 685,000 unknowing users, testing to see if their system could, by tweaking headlines, change the subconscious moods of their users. And indeed, they could. Now, he says not only that, but they measurably changed the moods of those users' friends. Now, he says, I'll leave it to you to speculate on what they've done with that information over the ensuing years. But he says, I know very well that the world has raced into social media and will defend their previous choices as only pre-committed humans can. Still, facts stand. Now, he says, if I'm at all right... For those of you who are still with me, please bear in mind that using social media, by using it, you are being provided with a custom environment created specifically for you, and and specifically for you on that day. 
Once immersed in that environment, you'll be thinking and feeling in response to personalized stimuli. Your reactions will then be fed into a monstrous data system, a system that most definitely is not centered on your interests. Social media operations are the most informed, most intimate, and most adaptable systems of manipulation that have ever existed, and by far. Now, Paul Rosenberg says we should also bear in mind that this is done by computers at a near zero per insistence cost. And yes, these symptoms are quite able to drink from a fire hose. They use special heuristics that thrive on it and even require it. So he says, if my argument is correct, we'd expect to see masses of humans who can be led directly from one collective stampede to another, despising those who refuse to join them. We'd also see whistleblowers, psychologists raising warnings, people obsessively checking their phones, and people who are unable to walk away, even though part of them is convinced they should. Sorry, I just raised my hand, because that's... That's exactly where I am. Paul Rosenberg says, in the end, social media functions by usurping free will. It is properly a mind parasite. Moreover, humanity has no natural immunity to this type of parasite simply because no such thing has ever previously existed. Now, he says, finally, I will remind everyone that a mere 20 years ago, we had none of these free systems. And free really should have been a clue. Nonetheless, We lived in heated houses, we drove cars, had jobs and friends, read books, fell in love, got married, had children. We didn't have such mind parasites, and we did at least as well without them. I know, this is kind of like starting out with with really heavy stuff. Do you feel like I just dumped a ton of bricks right in your lap? There you go. Something to consider. I think he's got a point worth, worth thinking about here, though. And I'm, I'm not telling you, boy, you better stay off social media and you better, you know, d- delete your accounts this instant. But I'd like you to consider some of the deeper implications and, and question. When you do go on social media, do you find yourself getting wrapped around the axle over this topic or that topic? And if that's the case, is it because you genuinely feel the way that you feel about a given subject or... Is it possible that you and I are being manipulated into feeling or pressured into feeling a certain way? I'm going to leave it up to you to come to the conclusions that you're going to come to. But it starts by asking questions about it. And I think Paul Rosenberg is definitely on the right path and asking the right kinds of questions. Got a link to it in the show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Big shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. By the way, I learned something very interesting yesterday, something that uh, actually made my heart just uh, leap with joy. And that is the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage definitely is there for you if you live in the great state of Utah to help you secure your home loan or your VA loan, your traditional loan, reverse mortgage, etc. Heather can also do loans throughout the state of Idaho. I don't know how many listeners I have throughout the state of Idaho as well, but uh, again, if you're if you're in the position you're moving to the Intermountain West, you've found your dream home, you want to make sure that you're able to quickly make an offer knowing where you stand, knowing how much you qualify for. 
Maybe you want to maybe you want to get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage ASAP. You can call 435-703-4522. There's an email link in the show notes under the sponsors section. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So a couple thoughts here. I don't know if you have uh, if if you're like me and and you do not like to be placed on the horns of a dilemma. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. This will take you back about 20 years ago. You're either with the terrorists or you're with us. Okay, now that's the horns of a dilemma. No right-thinking person's going to want to be with the terrorists, right? But what if your government, for instance, is not acting from a position of morality? Well, I don't want to be with them either. And so if I say, well, I'm, I'm not with either one of you, that's where you're likely to face accusations. Well, you're just, uh, you're just, you know, burying your head in the sand, or you're, you're cowardly opting out, or you're trying to escape. I want to share with you a quote here. This is actually a, a, a brief uh, piece from Jacob B. Wisniewski. Escapism is a defense of conscience and dignity, and I've never heard it put quite this way. He says, if someone thoughtfully decides that all the decision-making sides of a conflict are evil, corrupt, cynical, hypocritical, and lethal and therefore none of them deserves to be sympathetic. It's not an attitude of an ostrich burying his head in the sand or pilot cowardly washing his hands, but only a person who shows consistent respect for the gifts of conscience and dignity, refusing to defile them because of his alleged puritanism, because of their priceless value. Moreover, he says, it is only such an attitude that makes it possible to establish an honest understanding with all those who have suffered as the result of a given conflict despite its principled refusal to become anyone's pawns in it. To quote the classic, I'm not on anyone's side because nobody's on my side. Now he says, contrary to appearances, this is a statement that doesn't mean haughtiness or apathy, but steadfastness and vigilance. If this is an escapist statement, then only in the sense in which an escapist attitude is taken by a sane person trying to escape from an insane asylum. This, on the other hand, is the only right choice in the face of the increasingly complex scuffles between the various groups making up the establishment. I don't think I've ever quite heard it put that way before, but that, uh, that definitely rings true to me. Now, from there, I want to pivot and talk about uh, why, why is it finding common ground could be such a tough thing. And in particular, I'm going to bring this to a paradigm that a lot of us are familiar with, and that is, why is the middle ground between the right and the left so elusive? Got a great article here from Kenneth Lefebvre, published on intellectualtakeout.org. And he says, he starts with uh, with a quote from Trump lawyer Michael Vanderveen on Fox News last month. I really wish this country would come into the middle. It's so polarized on the left and on the right. Now, he says, Vanderveen is not alone in this desire, expressed shortly after Trump's second impeachment acquittal. Many commentators have noted that the country is polarized between left and right. This divide, it is further assumed or asserted, is not a good thing. It must be overcome by coming to the middle. Now, middle has a comforting feeling to it, cognate with reasonable and agreeable. But is it possible? I mean, surely if there's a left and a right, a middle must be possible. Kenneth Lefebvre says, but while these terms are used casually as if everyone knows what they mean, their origin suggests something that 
may map on, that may map onto their current usage. As political terms, left and right are a recent vintage. During the early years of the French Revolution, those favoring retaining the king sat on the right side of the assembly in Paris, while those favoring his elimination sat on the left. Now, a reading of this split would lead one to believe that the right must indicate support for governmental power, while the left stands for freedom from the same. This is how many dictionaries summarize left and right, liberal and compassionate on one side, and authoritarian or even dictatorial on the other. But as with many terms, a lack of context distorts the true meaning. Kenneth Lefebvre says the assemblyman who sat on the right did indeed favor retaining the king, but for a reason that constitutes the opposite of governmental power. King Louis XVI was known in France at that time as the restorer of liberty. After the tyrannical reign of Louis, I am the state 14, the 14th rather, and the wishy-washy rule of Louis XV, Louis XVI extended freedoms to French entrepreneurs to an extent never before known. His predecessor had answered French businessmen what the state could do for them, and they had famously answered, Laissez-nous-faire, let us make our own way. And this, of course, is the original, the origin, rather, of laissez-faire, the byword of free market economics. But it was Louis XVI, not Louis XV, who acted on it, withdrawing regulations and lowering taxes so as to encourage the flourishing of businesses. That is why those sitting on the right wanted the king to remain connected to his head so that he might continue to ensure the liberties of the French middle class. Freedom from government control was the desire of the right-sitters. What did the left-sitters want? Well, they wanted equality. For leftists then, as leftists now, there is no true freedom when people are divided by class and condition. Freedom as independence from state control is for them superficial freedom, freedom in name only, until people are made equal as the terror made them equal under the blade of the guillotine, destroying wealthy businessmen, ordinary shop owners, landlords, servants, and priests, there can be no freedom. Because the critical point is that equality is fundamental to true freedom. Neither liberality nor compassion nor any other shortcut definition of the left will do this, will do, because this is the common denominator. For the left, there can be no real freedom without equality as a starting place, while for the right, freedom is the starting place, the fundamental social condition required for a just world. Equality enters into it, but only in the sense that in a truly just society, every individual is free in equal degree to all others. If one person has the right to pursue happiness, all people do. So Kenneth Lefebvre says by now it should be clear that a middle ground between right and left can no more be found than a middle shape between a square and a circle. How could there be a compromise between a view that sees freedom as the one essential ingredient of a just society and the view that freedom is meaningless without the prior elimination of all inequalities? The answer is there simply cannot be. So what people mean when they call for a middle ground is not really a halfway place between two incompatible modes of thought, but a peaceful reasoning between advocates of the two antagonistic positions. Those on the right can and must, must, must most urgently wish for such a thing. But if recent events are any indication, he says the left realized long ago that peaceful reasoning is unnecessary since it can win political power without engaging the other side. I think you saw that most clearly the moment that, uh, that the Democrats won 
the presidency in 2020. I'm putting one in, uh, you know, quotation marks here. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm a skeptic. I'm I'm still thinking that there there was probably some some hanky panky going on. But I digress. But notice the very first actions when Joe Biden took office. Notice everything that has been pushed through and continues to be pushed through. It's not about, hey, we're just trying to do what's best for everybody and we need to build consensus. And you know what the consent of the governed? Oh, consent of the governed? No, they're not interested in that at all. We have the power. You will do what we say. And, of course, uh, they project and ascribe all of those dictatorial tendencies to their opponents. If we didn't do this, why, they'd be doing it to you. Which pretty well summarizes why politics sucks (laughs) in as little space as possible. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you have any interest in uh, dabbling in cryptocurrency, but I can tell you this. You got to have a little bit of education. I'm in the process right now of uh, augmenting my understanding. and There is so much to learn. It makes me it makes me wish that I were young and just getting started out, because I think I would I would definitely take a much more aggressive approach than I have taken thus far. But if you find that, uh, hey, maybe a portion of what uh, what I own or my wealth needs to be put into a type of uh, type of storage, a place where I can retain control over it away from prying fingers. Government, I'm looking your direction. Think about getting into crypto. Think about, I mean, it's this is totally up to you. But if you decide to make that leap, I want you to notice that there is a link on my website, Buy Crypto. Or you can simply go to governyourcrypto.com. The idea, the idea being, whatever you can do to make sure that your money really is your money. We'll quibble about, well, is it fiat or not? We can talk about that later. The bottom line is, can you control it or not, is the stronger question. And crypto offers uh, some opportunities that the money sitting in the bank right now does not. On that note, you know, bureaucracy is a primary source of cruelty and oppression in the world these days because it's very impersonal. We saw this here in uh, in Idaho just recently with the state coming in and taking a 10-month-old infant, little baby Cyrus, away from his mom and dad over concerns that the child was malnourished. Now, they have, they, the state has doubled down, not only medically kidnapping this child, but they've taken him from his family. They are uh, placing him in a foster home for at least another uh, month, maybe six months. I'm trying to remember. It's, it, it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very sad situation. If, if your faith in humanity is flagging, you may not want to look too deeply because this will show you just how awful people can be. But it stems from the bureaucracy, which can never be wrong, and the people are just checking off the boxes on their clipboard. It's a huge source of cruelty. And Barry Brownstein says, you know, the, the ongoing erosion of trust in bureaucrats and government actually is a positive development. He's got an article here called, It Takes a Village of Bureaucrats to Implement Despotism. Barry Brownstein writes, The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is committed to a vaccine solution for COVID-19. 
Bureaucrats at CDC believe you can't be trusted to see the critical data on COVID hospitalizations or the effectiveness of the COVID vaccine boosters. You might misinterpret the findings and be less inclined to get vaccinated or boosted. The New York Times reports the performance of vaccines and boosters, particularly in younger adults, is among the most glaring omissions in data the CDC has made public. Perhaps the withheld CDC data mirrors mirrors the Israeli data, which shows, for the second booster, vanishing efficacy. Now, Barry Brownstein writes, when the new FDA commissioner, Robert Califf, says his top priority is to fight the distortions and half-truths, he wasn't referring to misinformation coming from government bureaucrats. By withholding information, the CDC has been complicit in the firing of thousands of Americans from their jobs, many of them health professionals. You can hardly mandate something that doesn't work as advertised and doesn't prevent you from infecting others. Dr. Pierre Corey explains how edicts from politicized bureaucrats have led to hospital protocols calling for treating COVID with ineffective, expensive, and potentially unsafe drugs like remdesivir. Ryan Cooper writes, the practice of shading the truth or telling straight-up falsehoods in service of some half-baked political end started from the first moments of the pandemic. University of California professor of medicine, Dr. Vinay Prasad, also decries the lies. Quote, throughout the pandemic, public health officials have omitted uncomfortable truths, made misleading statements, and advanced demonstrably false assertions. In this, in, in the information era where one where what one says is easily accessible and anyone may read primary literature, these falsehoods will be increasingly recognized and severely damage the field's credibility. End quote. Now, Prasad also writes, we must carefully remove the power we have granted public health, which has often been, been misused. Now, Barry Brownstein says in Vasily Grossman's great Russian novel, Life and Fate, Two scientists are talking about their frustration navigating the highly politicized bureaucracy where a political error could result in being purged. Of the current bureaucrat in charge of their lab, one scientist says he's not such a bad type. Grossman, through another character, adds this teaching lesson. By the way, do you know the difference between a good type and a bad type? A good type is someone who behaves swinishly in spite of himself. Generalizing the lesson... Bureaucracies incentivize employees to betray public trust. Employees may feel bad about what they do, but they do bad things anyway. Grossman was writing about Stalinist Russia, but his observations can easily be applied to the CDC or Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Federal regulatory agencies and the bureaucrats running them are trampling on your rights. Columbia University law professor Philip Hamburger is one of the leading authorities on constitutional law. According to Hamburger, writing in his short book, The Administrative Threat, administrative power is a pre-constitutional mode of governance, the very sort of power that constitutions were most clearly expected to prevent. American bureaucrats are not fundamentally different from their counterparts in totalitarian societies. They're both unbounded by constitutional constraints. The only difference is in degree. Now, before the Supreme Court decisions on vaccine mandates, Hamburger left no doubt about where he stood. Quote, rather than merely evaluate the Biden administration's misdeeds, serious as they are, the court should reflect upon its own wayward doctrines. Its departures from the Constitution have authorized, even normalized, the government's departures. For this, the court is to blame. 
Now, Hamburger is referring to the normalization of administrative power. In the administrative threat, he is clear. The Constitution establishes only regular avenues of power and thereby blocks irregular or extra-legal power. To be precise, it blocks extra-legal lawmaking by placing legislative powers exclusively in Congress, and it prevents extra-legal adjudication by placing judicial power exclusively in the courts. End quote. So administrative mandates and rules are unconstitutional. Through administrative power, Hamburger argues there now exists a third but unconstitutional way by which the executive purports to create legal obligation. Administrative lawmaking is not justified as delegated power. Congress has no power to subdelegate its responsibilities to bureaucratic administrators. In short, administrative power, Hamburger writes, is the very sort of power that constitutions were expected to prevent. Now, he warns that power wielded through government bureaucracies binds Americans and deprives them of their liberty. And Barry Brownstein writes, many citizens yield to administrative power, believing we need experts, such as Fauci, to guide us. Hamburger cautions, a person with specialized expertise will tend to overestimate the importance of that area and underestimate the significance of others. As a result, although experts can be valuable for their specialized knowledge, they cannot usually be relied upon for decisions that take a balanced view of of the consequences. Now, Hamburger was writing before COVID. Clearly, of the administrative agencies and bureaucrats threatening our liberties today, Dr. Fauci has led the charge. Fauci is arguably one of the most powerful unelected officials in American history. So to stem the tide of rising administrative power, Hamburger recommends that we should bar judicial deference to agencies on questions of law or fact, as this violates due process and other constitutional limitations. Further, he recommends Congress should remove immunity for administrators, beginning with those who have desk jobs and agencies with a track record of violating constitutional rights. As Hamburger explains in his book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Administrative law not only evades the law, but also its institutions, processes, and rights. Dang. Now, among the horrifying passages in Life and Fate are those where Grossman describes in detail what went into building the gas chambers in Nazi concentration camps. Hitler, Himmler, and Eichmann didn't pluck these horrors from thin air. Gas chambers were not among products sold in the marketplace. Thousands of actions had to be coordinated by a bureaucracy and a military willing to follow insane and criminal orders. Do you get this? Tens of thousands of highly educated individuals had to follow orders. I've got to tap the brakes here, but I'm going to continue on in the next segment with this essay from Barry Brownstein. And actually, in in the other hour of the show, we're going to spend some time talking about how the great danger isn't so much the, the person at the top. It's all those people below that authority figure who obey without question. That is the source of the greatest harm and the greatest atrocities that humankind has ever seen. Now I hear you saying, okay, Brian, but what does this all have to do with me? And the answer is you have a conscience. You have a duty to understand the difference between right and wrong and when presented with the choice to choose not to participate in things that are morally questionable. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. I do want to express my appreciation to you for being a part of my audience. You have a lot of choices as to where you can direct your attention. I thank you for giving me a chance to uh, to put some ideas and some thoughts out there in front of you for consideration. You know as well as I do that I don't have all the answers, but hopefully I'm, I'm giving you some insights, giving you some encouragement to, to better understand the world around us. My efforts are made possible by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com. I encourage you to click the link. In fact, I'd really love for you to check out their ultimate sour, let's try that again, ultimate solar power and cooking emergency food kit. It's really a remarkable kit. And it will uh, it will give you options uh, in ways that uh, that you hadn't even expected. $599.99, we'll round it to 600 bucks. You're saving $230 off the suggested retail price. And it is very comprehensive. Maybe take a look at it and see if it's something you could use. All right, back to Barry Brownstein's article about it takes a village of bureaucrats to impose oppression or to implement despotism. Sorry, I need to, I need to quote him, him correctly here. I want to come back to his observation, and he's, he's quoting uh, this, uh, this author, Grossman, the author of uh, Life and Fate, Vasily Grossman, talking about the horrors of the German concentration camps. And, and this is through a character by the name of Obersturmbannführer Liss, who visits the Voss Engineering Works. Voss Works had been entrusted with an important part of the order to create the gas chambers. And Liss was satisfied with their work. The directors had, provoked, had devoted considerable thought to the project and were keeping precisely to the specifications. The mechanical engineers had improved the construction of the conveyors and the thermal technicians had developed a more economical system for heating the ovens. I mean, do you stop and think this, this, it may be in the context of a, a fictional character that's, that's observing these things, but these things really happened. Real human beings made these kinds of decisions. And Barry Brownstein says, writing in his illuminating but understating st- understated style, Grossman brings home the point that many well-educated, well-educated individuals had to participate in this depraved process. Back to the book. Liss refused an invitation to observe the experiments being conducted in the laboratory. He did, however, look through pages of records signed by various physiologists, chemists, and biochemists. He also met the young researchers responsible for the experiments. A physiologist and biochemist, both women, a specialist in pathological anatomy, a chemist who specialized in organic compounds with a low boiling point, and Professor Fisher himself, the toxicologist who was in charge of the group. Still much more was needed. Grossman explains a railway railway track had been laid down, leading directly off the main line to the construction site. The tour of inspection began with the depots alongside the railway line. First under an awning was the sorting depot. This was filled with component parts of a variety of machines, tubes and pipes of every diameter, unassembled conveyor belts, fans and ventilators, ball mills for human bones, gas and electricity meters soon to be mounted on control panels, drums of cable, cement, tip wagons, heaps of rails, and office furniture. 
Now, Grossman continues with construction details and descriptions of people operating the camps. One such person was Private Rose, whose job was to watch through the inspection window. When the process was completed, he gave the order for the gas chamber to be emptied. He was also expected to check that the dentists worked efficiently and honestly. The dentists were extracting gold dental work from those murdered. From the book again. At the end of each day, one of the dentists would hand Rose a small packet containing several gold crowns. Although this represented only an insignificant fraction of the precious metal taken every day to the camp authorities, Rose had twice handed over almost a kilo of gold to his wife. This was their bright future, their dream of a peaceful old age. As a young man, Rose had been weak and timid, unable to play an active part in life's struggle. He had never doubted that the party had set itself one aim only, the well-being of the weak and small. He had already experienced the benefits of Hitler's policies. Life had improved immeasurably for him and his family. Now, Barry Brownstein says the party looked out for the small and weak, according to Rose's reasoning. If Rose's conscience were pricked, he could think, I'm not a criminal, I'm merely serving the common good. Grossman writes, People struggling for their particular good always attempt to dress it up as a universal good. They say, my good coincides with the universal good. My good is essential not only to me, but to everyone. In achieving my good, I serve the universal good. Complying with the orders of bureaucrats to commit unimaginable atrocities, people can rationalize away their criminality. Grossman writes, the air is full of the groans and cries of the condemned. The sky is turned black. The sun has been extinguished by the smoke of the gas ovens. And even these crimes... Crimes never before seen in the universe, by even by man on earth, have been committed in the name of good. So let's bring it back to, to our time. Barry Brownstein says there are no gas chambers in America, and it's unlikely there ever will be. Yet exercising extra-legal power, an army of bureaucrats working for the CDC, FDA, OSHA, have terrorized America, dividing Americans into the clean and unclean. As Laurie Williams writes, an unelected government agency was allowed to classify us into critical infrastructure and non-essential and confine many of us to our homes. Now, these bureaucrats, Williams adds, helps, help to teach us to see each other as potential contagions, not potential collaborators. These bureaucrats don't have the terrible powers of bureaucrats in Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia, yet I shudder to think what would happen if they were so empowered. Now, as with Private Rose, life is good for some who cooperate with COVID bureaucrats. Some have a vested interest in perpetuating the pandemic. Musa Algarbi, a sociology fellow at Columbia University, recently observed why academics and bureaucrats don't want to let go of COVID. Quote, a constellation of scholars, bureaucrats, and pundits seem invested in COVID remaining a crisis indefinitely. As the political scientist Oren Cass put it, many have been granted more money, prestige, and inst institutional power than they would have ever had in the wake of the pandemic. For them, a return to normal would mean a return to being largely ignored and exerting marginal influence over society. It would mean losing new revenue streams that they've grown accustomed to, and so on. In light of this reality, it is perfectly natural that many experts, administrators, and talking heads would be disinclined to return to normal. Loss aversion is a powerful cognitive bias. However, recognizing these impulses as banal rather than nefarious does not render them unproblematic. 
They can skew policymaking and expert advice towards continued invasive policies and a continued sense of panic in ways that are excessive and pernicious, end quote. Now, from here, Barry Brownstein goes into ending our silence and says the will of the voting public will often do little to reverse policies of unbridled bureaucracies. In fact, in his seminal Democracy in America, written in 1840, Alexis de Tocqueville explained that in Europe, the basis of power was the upper echelons of society, whereas power in America began with individuals acting in associations, local governments, and then states. Today, Tocqueville wouldn't recognize an America where power resides so significantly in an unconstitutional federal bureaucracy. And he has a wonderful quote here from, from, de, to- from de Tocqueville that uh, talks about how centralization might one day lead to an administrative despotism. Now, in interest of time, I've got to skip ahead here just a little bit, but here's the, here's the key. Barry Brownstein says, as we find our voices... The pendulum of power will shift back in a Tocquevillian direction. In America today, decentralization movements growing, advocating greater local control. Continued erosion of public trust in federal agencies and government experts will hasten that movement. While we wait for others to wake up, Grossman believes we can choose everyday human kindness. This is so important. Ordinary people bear love in their hearts, he wrote, are naturally full of love and pity for any living thing. At the end of the day's work, they prefer the warmth of the hearth to a bonfire in the public square. Kindness, Grossman adds, is what is most truly human in a human being. It's what sets man apart, the highest achievement of his soul. No, it says, life is not evil. So Barry Brownstein concludes, life is not evil, but bureaucracies are often cruel. America is regressing back to the early 17th century, Hamburger observes, in the manner of King James of England, who governed via edicts from his star chamber. Of administrative power, Hamburger warns, it is difficult to think of a more serious civil liberties problem for the 21st century. This is great stuff. You should subscribe, by the way. Barry Brownstein's Mind Shift, let's try this again, Mindset Shifts. Substack is well worth your time. I've got a link that I'll provide to his article. You should click the subscribe button and get his uh, essays regularly, though. They'll not only feed your understanding of the world, but they'll feed your soul. There's a lot of good content there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think five days a week. I have some great show notes that will help contribute to your understanding of the world around us. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, why should I listen to anything you have to say, though? And it's a fair question. And truth be told, I sometimes wonder that myself. After all, it's not like I'm drawing from some deep well of wisdom. It's not like I am the guru sitting atop the high mountain here to explain the mysteries of life to anybody. 
You know, truth be told, if I sit there and tally it all up, I really don't have that much going for me. I'm not famous. I'm not rich. I'm not uh, well-educated. I'm not uh, highly influential. But the one thing I do have in my favor, such as it is, is that uh, I place a higher value on truth and conscience than I do on simply being accepted and loved by everyone who encounters me. And if you're a person who places a higher value on truth than you do on simply being comfortable or, you know, again, receiving accolades or feeling like, hey, I'm in with the crowd. Look at me. I'm hanging with the cool kids. I think you're going to find a lot to, a lot of substance here and some great food for thought. Now, of course, uh, I, I preface everything I say with, you know, I, I do want to challenge the narrative. I want to encourage you to challenge the narrative, not because we're trying to be contrary or because we're so much better than everybody else, but simply because... In times of crisis, the highest duty we have as individuals is to think as clearly and independently as possible so as not to be led into something, you know, that we don't want to be led into. Got some great sponsors who make this program possible. They include GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. So I want to start with something that, uh, well, it should hopefully uh, get, get a, a few people's blood pressure up. But I want to talk about uh, nonconformism. If you're a nonconformist, there is no doubt you have been accused of having very suspect motives. Well, why do you do this? What's it? Who's paying you? Are you, are you one of Putin's stooges? I mean, that's that's the latest example. But you know, is the gun lobby lining your pockets? Nobody can believe that that people would actually stand up for something as a matter of conscience because it's the right thing to do as opposed to, well, how are you benefiting from this? Now, truth be told, if there is a benefit, it's that my conscience is at peace, which it turns out in the grand scheme of things, if you can reach the end of your life with your conscience at peace and being on good terms with your conscience, then I would say you've lived a pretty successful life. It's the people who come to the end of their life and meet their conscience for the very first time at that moment, that's going to be a really difficult and and hard situation to find yourself in. I've got a great article here. This is actually from July of 2021, and it's by Michael Driver describing how the real problem, in his case, he says the real pandemic, is everyone doing as they are told. So keep in mind that this may be talking about the pandemic, but I want you to apply it to other things where you have to do this because everybody else is doing it as opposed to following your own conscience. He says, uh, Michael Driver says, we live in the age of the oxymoron. Diversity means everyone thinks the same. Tolerance means the vicious exclusion of anyone who doesn't. Leveling up is literally exacerbating inequality to medieval levels. Freedom passports mean you, means you require papers to watch football. Vaccines don't prevent the infection or transmission of disease. Democracy is the imposition of new laws and policies that no one voted for. Journalism is propaganda. Modern monetary theory means effect before cause. The wet pavements cause rain branch of economics. Education is the process of removing information rather than importing it. That you don't think but repeat is more important than that you learn and grow. Asymptomatic transmission means the healthy can infect the immunized. 
sociopaths or philanthropists. Virtue signaling is camouflage for a collapse in morality. The Green New Deal is neither green, new, or a deal. Environmentalists means a collection of the world's most polluting corporations. Climate change policies are any act which preserves the most extreme forms of exploitation. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, owning nothing is happiness. As Orwell might have added if he were around today. Probably on social media. Another oxymoron, they're hard to escape. Michael Driver says a parlor game for this age of absurdity is to see how many of these logical inversions you can think of. Now he says, I want to head in a different direction and consider two questions. What is the effect of collective cognitive dissonance? Where will it lead us? He says, I believe the effect of collective cognitive dissonance, dissonance rather, is the mass abdication of responsibility to authority. When something becomes impossible to understand or reconcile, the natural human instinct is to rely on authority figures to herd. When people feel intense insecurity, they abdicate freedom for perceived safety. According to <coughs> excuse me, psychologist Eric Fromm, most people are not even aware of their need to conform. They live under the illusion that they follow their own ideas and inclinations, that they are individualists, that they have arrived at their opinions as the result of their own thinking and that it just happens that their ideas are the same as those of the majority. Now, Fromm described the concept of automaton conformity as changing one's ideal self to conform to a perception of society's preferred type of personality, losing one's true self in the process. Fromm described the desire to subsume the self into the herd. Now, the human species now sounds like a herd of animals with the relentless repetition of alliterative phraseology, for build back better, I hear moo, 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 or a new normal ba, ba. A cacophony of mindless agreement is expressed as poetic assonance. Double jabbed, we yabber at each other like a flock of jabbering birds. Another parlor game for the next lockdown is to list all the new terms and phrases which sound like advertising slogan, slogans or neurolinguistic programming. Why the repetition? Why the repetition? He says the real pandemic is everyone thinking the same. A culture so mono, it feels as if ISIS won. So why is this conformity reckless? Well, he says the width of the edge is what really matters in society. Too wide and we have anarchism, too narrow, totalitarianism. Mass conformity is the mechanism of totalitarianism. It is the most reckless act. Progress is always ground up. Never top down. All the good stuff happens at the edge. Great art is never produced by corporations. Scientific discoveries take place in patent offices, medical breakthroughs, and dirty petri dishes. Great music is made by the unemployed. Entrepreneurs succeed via repeated failure. Mandela didn't change the world from, Davo, from Davos. The moment the pressure on de Klerk forced him to widen the edge, the idea of freedom nursed by Mandela blossomed like a giant protea. The campaigners for women's suffrage were on the edge of society. Nothing changes from the middle. A third game might be to look around you and list everything born of the maverick. Start with the device you're most likely reading this article on and work your way out. Now, the article here starts with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. 
Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. So with that quote in mind, Mavericks need space to dance to a different tune. The edge needs to be just wide enough, and those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music, as Nietzsche might have said. I love this this final line of this essay, though. This one rings so true to me. Reckless conformists hear only one note. Mavericks, the whole range. Think of us as the control group. I mean, it really makes me ponder the question, why is it that some people can hear the whole note of what's going on, whereas the conformists only hear one? Let me put that in, a, in another way. Why is it that some people are able to recognize the tyranny that is coalescing around us while others can't seem to see it? I don't know what the answer is. Why do some people recognize this? Why don't others? I'm going to hazard a guess, and I could be dead wrong on this, but I have to wonder if it has something to do with spiritual development. And I don't want to make that sound like, well, only the truly righteous, like me, you know, can, can really figure things out. But I, I think there is something to being attuned to, uh, to the highest reality possible that helps us to recognize the truths which really matter the most in the long run. That's probably as deep as I'm going to dig for the moment, so yeah. Let me wipe the sweat off my brow and I'll back away from, from where I've been digging, but good question to ask yourself. Why is it some people notice things that other people don't? It can't be that uh, you know the ones who are noticing those things are just insane. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Great sponsors like SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com are the ones who help make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. I can't tell you how much I appreciate them, and I want to encourage you, insofar as you are able, please support my sponsors. You know, do business with them if they have what you need, and if if they uh, don't have what you need at the moment, tell a friend about it. Maybe take a moment to drop them an email or make a phone call to them and tell them, thanks for sponsoring the program. I'm looking at the website right now for SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. This is a very unique business in that it was started back in 1984. It has only had three owners. The current owners are Teresa and Eric Alsop. But the original proprietor still is very much a part of its day-to-day operations. And I believe he's there repairing, uh, you know, sewing machines and sergers and so forth, long-arm <clears throat> quilting machines and, and, and so forth. But if you or someone you know is in any way involved in or interested in the sewing arts, you can't find a more comprehensive shop to get your supplies, to get your machines, to get the service for those machines, and best of all, to learn how to use them. Really use them. In fact, I noticed here at the bottom of their website, if you want to subscribe to their newsletter, they'll tell you all about the promotions, the sales that are going on, the new products, right to your inbox. Go to sewingquiltingcenter.com. Sure appreciate their sponsorship. 
You know, it's crazy to me how even a lot of the people who recognize just how predatory and bureaucratic government is becoming at every level still tend to fall in line to support it whenever the war drums start beating. I haven't quite figured that one out. I mean, truth be told, that was once me. I mean, I did it too. So I don't want it to sound like, gee, you know, I've never been tempted to. I get it. You know, I've, I've been there myself. But Ken McManigle has a really great perspective on why we should always question the official line. Now, this is particularly in the context of uh, Russia and Ukraine and, and the suffering that's going on with the conflict between these two nations. Kent McManigle says it's crazy how many people still imagine political government is credible or legitimate. How many take it at its word, even while watching events around the world today? Even the national media corporations who report on political news often simply parrot government's story instead of doing their job questioning everything it says, except when they have a vendetta against a specific politician or party. And he says social media and the entertainment industry may be even worse. Now, Ken McManigle says for him, the last nail in the coffin of government legitimacy happened almost three decades ago during a mass murder committed by government employees near Waco, Texas. The event has acted as a vaccine against any belief in political authority or unquestioning acceptance of anything anyone official might say since then. And he says this skepticism has served me well. The original vaccination or that original vaccination might not have lasted this long, except for government actions that served as boosters delivered regularly over the years. One of those boosters, September 11th, 2001, caused an adverse reaction in me. He says it nearly took me down. I recovered, though, with it ultimately strengthening my immune response against all authoritarianism. I really like the analogy he's using. This this one is hitting on all cylinders for me. He says, maybe this is why I don't quite believe the story the official sources are promoting on the Ukraine invasion. Now, he says, I do consider Putin to be the worst among a terrible group right now. He's the last person who had the chance to do the right thing, but chose to do the wrong thing instead. He says, I know, however, he didn't start committing his latest evil act on a whim. He was led or possibly shoved down a bad path by decades of unethical acts by other governments. Now, you don't get excused for committing evil, even if you were provoked, though. But similarly, you don't improve your security by tolerating your government meddling around the world. I mean, you see how that's working out now. Kent McManigle says it's never right to invade another country and destroy private property and people there. No matter who you believe might be hiding there or nor what that region's government did to you, invading and occupying, assuming you win is how you lose the moral high ground the fastest. So he says, I'm always going to root for the defenders and will never sympathize with the invaders. But he says, I feel bad for the Ukrainian people and the Russian people who are suffering due to the acts of political criminals. I just hope they realize who their real enemies are and deal with them appropriately. Now, at the risk of sounding like a complete and utter radical, I would say we probably should should be more focused on who our real enemies are here. And I'm not an enemy-driven person. I'm just acknowledging the people who are looking at us through the lens of these people are my enemies are the people who are inhabiting the halls of our own government. Don't believe me? 
Why then would they need to, to coerce you and lock you down and force you to do everything that they say without question? Why would they turn the entire weaponized national security apparatus against you over the prospect that you might someday disobey them? Yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in what's going on uh, with, with, the, uh, uh, with our national government particularly. Now, I do believe that there is value in federalism. In fact, I'm going to include in the show notes, I hope you'll take the time to check this out, an excellent article from Gary M. Gallas. This was published on the American Institute for Economic, Freedom, for Economic Research, AIER's website, AIER.org. Let me give you a quick excerpt here. Gary Gallus says that America's founding decentralization of power, a federal system rather than a national system, better described as the states united solely for specified joint purposes rather than the United States, played a key role in protecting Americans' liberties from infringement. Infringement, rather. However, in America today, for every problem, real or imagined, a national solution is proposed, regardless of how individual, local, or varied the interests are whether it involves housing, education, energy, transportation, finance, labor, health care, insurance, or virtually anything else, Americans are overwhelmed with ever more federal government knows best policies and programs centralized in Washington. And what it does not mandate, the federal government manipulates with its ability to massively redistribute income among individuals and state and local governments, as with trust fund money that can be withheld if federal wishes are not treated as commands. Now, his point is that America's founders did not envision the federal government as being involved in virtually any decision made by anyone, much less as the domineering senior partner for almost every decision made by everyone. As Alexander Hamilton, perhaps the most big government founder, wrote in Federalist 17, all those things in short, which are proper to be provided by local legislation, can never be desirable cares of a general jurisdiction. James Madison wrote in Federalist 39 that the new Constitution will, if established, be a federal and not a national Constitution. And in Federalist 45, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined, exercised principally on external objects. This is really great stuff. He quotes from Felix Morley's Freedom and Federalism which Liberty Fund called a pioneering achievement. Listen to this quote. This is from Morley. Federalism serves admirably to foster freedom without the sacrifice of order. So cutting to the chase, and this is a, this is a very uh, well thought out article from Gary Gallas. If America is to reestablish federalism and the liberties it protects, he says Felix Morley's Freedom and Federalism book is a great place to start. Neither the building blocks of individual liberty nor the arch of freedom will stand secure without the keystone of federalism. It is federalism that holds up the arch. It is federalism that makes possible the preservation of both liberty and freedom. That's why lovers of liberty and freedom, self-ownership, and solely voluntary arrangements over as wide a canvas as possible need to rediscover the force of federalism in resisting the ever-growing reach of centralized political determination, which is tyranny even if it is tyranny of the majority.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm going to suggest that this might be a really good investment of your time. If you're a person who's serious about knowing what's going on, you want to hear about a number of different topics from some very principled and credible sources, I'm not saying you have to believe everything that's written there, but I, I do try to pick sources that that are, are much more focused on principle than on simply some partisan issue. So if you want to subscribe, go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. Click on show notes and down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a subscribe feature. Just put in your email and I'll send a copy to your inbox each and every day that I do the show. And I will never share or sell your email to anybody else. This one stays just between you and me. No funny stuff, no cops. All right. And here's where I have to walk the tightrope a little bit today because I am seeing more and more articles and more voices warning about potential disruptions like widespread disruptions in the global food supply chain in the very near future. And if you have any sense that, uh, well, there might be some disruptions in the food supply chain, now is the time to take action. Got a great piece here that I picked up off of AmericanThinker.com. The author, this is clearly a pen name, Anonymy. (laughs) Food shortages soon come. What to do? And I think there's some really great advice here. We'll start out with a word that uh, that I have very seldom seen, much less said. A concatenation of events is dropping on us like an imploding building, and there's not much we can do to stop it. However, we can mitigate some of the potential damage through our individual efforts, and we need to get started now. But first, here's a bit of good news. H. Douglas Lightfoot and Gerald Ratzer have published a paper, The Sun versus CO2 as the Cause of Climate Change, or climate change projected to 2050. It thrashes the IPCC's global warming model. However, the paper also kicks off this food shortage discussion. The authors say that the Earth is now in the early stages of cooling that might be similar to the Dalton minimum and can last for three or four decades. Average temperatures can drop by up to 1.5 degrees Celsius and increase the rate of crop failures that have already started. It won't be easy to maintain the benefits of the recent warm phase of the sun during the upcoming solar minimum. That's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit and significant. Now, Lightfoot and Ratzer confirm that we've already entered the Grand Solar Minimum, or GSM, and that negative impacts on crops are already occurring. We've seen harvest shortfalls in a variety of crops around the world over the past couple of seasons, coupled with these shortfalls. A few countries have limited or halted exports of staple products, mostly grains and legumes. For two years and continuing until today, there have been interruptions in commodities for sale. A number of factors contribute to this stuttering availability of commercial goods. Labor shortages in picking, packing, processing, and transportation led to gaps on grocery shelves. Delayed imports of raw materials for canning, bottling, and bagging due to shutdowns in countries of origin will likely continue now that China is locking down whole cities again. Now, because of recent crop failures and lackluster harvests, 
Many regional grocery warehouses, which usually have about 18 months worth of packaged and frozen food in stock, are practically empty, according to a friend whose family owns a large chain of stores. Low stocks of livestock feed and hay due to drought are reducing meat, poultry, milk, and egg production in some areas. Now, Monica Showalter's excellent article the other day, Biden is about to get caught flat-footed on another crisis, Ukraine war generated global food shortages, examines the impact that Russia's war on Ukraine is having and expected to have on global grain and fertilizer availability as well as food production. Now, besides the drought hitting the mid-plains and potentially causing the abandonment of this year's winter wheat, winter wheat that's for flour, crop, the La Nina system is expected to bring above-average rains to the eastern and southeastern parts of the U.S., potentially delaying planting and harvest. If California continues to value a practically non-existent smelt over its people, there will be little water for the Sacramento-area rice farmers. They've already pulled down avocado and almond orchards due to restricted water allocations elsewhere in the state. Oh, it gets better. Farmers are also being hit hard by shortages and skyrocketing inflation, just like the rest of us. Anhydrous ammonia, used to fertilize most grain and many row crops, has had a massive jump in price from $487 per ton in 2020 to $746 in 2021 to a record-breaking $1,492 per ton the first week of February this year. Demand for fertilizer is expected to grow, but high prices in Europe for natural gas from which the fertilizer is made caused a slowdown in the manufacturing last winter. Agriculture production runs on a very tight margin, with producers taking all the risk for seed, livestock, machinery, and labor, along with the weather, with no guarantee of success or profit at the end of the year. Some farmers and ranchers faced with such increased costs, as well as the insupportable costs for fuel and repair parts to run farm machinery, are well, looking elsewhere. Opportunities current exist, currently exist for farmland to be put into paid conservation easements or fallowed into carbon credits. These require no inputs other than an occasional mowing, but produce a guaranteed payment. And some farmers have taken advantage of these already. So here the author says, I had recommended before that people begin to stock up on long-season pantry items like grain, pasta, oils, and the like to carry them through the worst of this uh, grand solar minimum. Variable weather is the hallmark of these cyclical events. Now, Christian over at Ice Age Farmer pulled together a compendium of disasters that occurred during the Maunder grand solar minimum of 1645 through 1715. And it shows that colder and harsher weather resulted in a patchwork of drought, flood, hard winters, and famine throughout the minimum. Now, we need to remember that. Of the general population in the late 1600s, about 90% were engaged in farming. Today, less than 1% of Americans are farmers and ranchers, and only 2% of us live on farms. Already, we're hearing about food rationing in various places in Europe. We've seen some of that during the worst of the pandemic shortages, but it's been managed by local vendors, and it's likely to get, get much worse before it gets better. Let's go Brandon's expertise lies in making the worst possible decision given any type of choice and regardless of the number of options available. That much is painfully obvious. And we can rest assured that when the government wakes up to this problem, it will be too late. 
Now, the demands of equity will ensure that those at the head of the food and farm assistant lines are the ones with the most victimhood points. Even if the food we are used to is available, the cost will be close to prohibitive for those on a budget. Also, it's very likely nothing will have been done in the meantime to secure our food stocks from the predations of the export market. It will be another case of the political class waiting until the last minute and then going overboard trying to react. So we must take care of ourselves as best we can. Most of us can't grow sufficient grain or press enough oil to meet our needs. So we need to set aside what we can for future use. We should begin to produce as much of our own food as possible, though. It's time to make Americans gardeners again. MAGA. (laughs) Sorry, that just struck me as funny. Potatoes, other root crops, and winter squashes are tasty, good for us, and are calorie-dense. They're also fairly easy to grow and store. Greens can be grown year-round with a little help from inside lighting. Dwarf fruit trees are attractive, produce early, and can be sheltered fairly easily during harsh weather. We can preserve the rest of our produce by dehydration, canning, pickling, and many other ways, but the time to buy seeds is now. Backyard chickens take a little more effort and input, but more recent breeds will lay 200 to 250 eggs or more a year. One hen will need about 90 pounds of feed a year, less if supplemented with garden and kitchen scraps, and moved around the yard for fresh greens. Look up chicken tractors. Hens are multi-purpose. They provide meat, eggs, and with a rooster, even perhaps a fresh crop of baby chicks. They will clean up the late summer garden and eat all the bugs they can reach. Again, the time to buy chicks is right now. Vendors will happily help anyone get started. But here's the bottom line. It's up to us. We the people must demand that our government secures our bounty for hard times coming. But we must also be prepared to be ignored. Home gardens, community gardens, urban farming, and school and workplace food production will be our generation's victory gardens. Let us pray that we prevail. Now, I'm not sharing this with you to make you nervous or to otherwise, you know, play to your panic. Oh my gosh, we're all going to starve to death. But I'm glad there are people like this anonymous writer who are paying attention. And I believe that this is a, a well-founded warning. In fact, I believe it so much that uh, I went out last week and uh, invested in more gardening tools. Because, uh, like it or not, we're going to get serious. My family and I are going to be much more serious about producing more of our own food this year. If you haven't had that conversation with the people closest to you, maybe this is a good time to start talking about it and start uh, formulating your own plans. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. All right, this is this is where I'm going to be venting just a little bit, but I get so tired of the deception that typifies mainstream media coverage. And one of the biggest stories right now, and, and if, you, if you try to shrug this off, I guess, you know, maybe it's just, well, it just wasn't important to me, but, you know, the story over the Hunter Biden laptop, it's, it's not the story of the laptop itself, which apparently contains some really incriminating stuff. I mean, some really ugly stuff. But it's the fact that the media 
the mainstream media went to the mat to tell us, well, that's nothing more than Russian disinformation. And now the New York Times is coming out and saying, well, actually, it turns out the uh, Hunter Biden laptop really was legit. So here we are a year and a half after the election season of 2020. Clearly, the media was running interference for the current regime. What are we supposed to think about this? I mean, the media knows they're lying. We know they're lying. But they still keep lying to us. And sadly, a vast majority of Americans behave as if, well, we've got to take them at their, their face value. We've got to do what they say. Glenn Greenwald, as always, leads out on holding the media and uh, holding their feet to the fire. And his latest essay on his Substack account, the New York Times, now admits the Biden laptop, falsely called Russian disinformation, is authentic. And the big lesson here is that the media outlets which spread this lie from ex-CIA officials never retracted their pre-election falsehoods. The ones used by big tech to censor reporting on the front runner. Greenwald says one of the most successful disinformation campaigns in modern American electoral history occurred in the weeks prior to the 2020 presidential election. On October 14, 2020, less than three weeks before Americans were set to vote, the nation's oldest newspaper, the New York Post, began publishing a series of reports about the business dealings of Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden and his son Hunter in countries which Biden, as vice president, wielded considerable influence, including Ukraine and China, and would again if elected president. Now, the backlash against this reporting was immediate and intense leading to the suppression of the story by U.S. corporate media, corporate media outlets and censorship of the story by leading Silicon Valley monopolies. The disinformation campaign against this reporting was led by the CIA's all-but-official spokesperson, Natasha Bertrand, then of Politico, now with CNN, whose article on October 19th appeared under this headline, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former intel officials say. Now, Glenn Greenwald says these former intel officials did not actually say that the Hunter Biden story is Russian disinfo. Indeed, they stressed in their letter the opposite, namely that they had no evidence to suggest the emails were falsified or that Russia had anything to do with them, but instead had merely intuited this suspicion based on their experience. Here's what they actually said. We want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement. Just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case, end quote. But Greenwald says a media that was overwhelmingly desperate to ensure Trump's defeat had no time for facts or annoying details such as what these former officials actually said or whether it was in fact true. They had an election to manipulate. As a result, that these emails were Russian disinformation, meaning that they were fake and that Russia had manufactured them, became an article of faith among the U.S.'s justifiably despised class of media employees. Now, he says very few even included the crucial caveat that intelligence officials themselves stressed, namely that they had no evidence at all to corroborate this claim. 
Instead, as he noted last September, virtually every media outlet, CNN, NBC News, PBS, Huffington Post, The Intercept, and too many others to count, began completely ignoring the substance of the reporting and began and instead spread the lie over and over that these documents were the byproduct of Russian disinformation. The Huffington Post even published a must-be-seen-to-believed campaign ad for Joe Biden, masquerading as reporting that spread this lie and that emails were Russian disinformation. Now, Greenwald says this disinformation campaign about the Biden emails was then used by big tech to justify brute censorship of any reporting on or discussion of this story. Easily the most severe case of pre-election censorship in modern American political history. Let that one sink in for a moment. Because remember, these are the same media sources that are telling you and I, you cannot question the outcome of the 2020 election. You cannot question the the, uh, honesty or the transparency of this election. This is why my blood pressure spikes a little bit. These lying liars who told us, oh, that was just Russian disinformation, also want to insist, but, but everything was on the up and up regarding the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Twitter locked the New York Post's Twitter account for close to two weeks due to its refusal to obey Twitter's orders to delete any reference to its reporting. The social media site also blocked any and all references to the reporting by all users. Twitter users were barred even from linking the story in private chats with one another. Facebook, through its spokesman, the longtime DNC operative Andy Stone, announced that they would algorithmically suppress discussion of the reporting to ensure it did not spread, pending a fact-check by Facebook's third-party fact-checking partners, which, needless to say, never came, precisely because the archive was indisputably authentic. Now, Greenwald says the archive's authenticity, as he documented in a video report from September, was clear from the start. Indeed, as he described in that report, he says, I staked my career on its authenticity when I demanded that The Intercept publish my analysis of these revelations. And then he resigned when its vehemently anti-Trump editors censored any discussion of those emails precisely because it was indisputable that the archive was authentic. The Intercept's former New York Times former New York Times reporter James Risen was given the green light by these same editors to spread and endorse the CIA's lie, as he insisted the laptop should be ignored because a group of intelligence officials issued a letter saying that the Giuliani laptop story has the classic trademarks of Russian disinformation. Now, Glenn Greenwald says, "I knew the archive was real." because all the relevant journalistic metrics that one evaluates to verify large archives of this type, including the Snowden Archive and the Brazil Archive, which I used to report a series of investigative exposés, left no doubt that it was genuine. That includes documented verification from third parties who were included in the email chains and who showed that the emails they had in their possessions matched the ones in the archive word for word. So any residual doubts that the Biden archive was genuine, there should have been none, were shattered when a reporter from Politico, Ben Schreckdinger, or Schreckinger, rather, published a book last September entitled The Bidens, Inside the First Family's 50-Year Rise to Power, in which his new reporting proved that the key emails on which the New York Post relied were entirely authentic. 
Among other things, Schreckinger interviewed several people included in the email chains who provided confirmation that the emails in their possession matched the ones in the Post Archive word for word. He also obtained documents from the Swedish government that were identical to key documents in the archive. His own outlet, Politico, was one of the few to even acknowledge his book. While ignoring the fact that they were the first to spread the lie that the emails were Russian disinformation, Politico editors, under the headline Double Trouble for Biden, admitted that the book finds evidence that some of the purported Hunter Biden laptop material is genuine, including two emails at the center of last October's controversy. Now, there's a lot more to this article. I'm going to leave it to you to check it out for yourself. Glenn Greenwald says, whatever else is true, both the CIA media disinformation campaign in the weeks before the 2020 election and the resulting regime of brute censorship imposed by big tech are of historic significance. Democrats and their new allies in the establishment wing of the Republican Party may be more excited by war in Ukraine than the subversion of their own election by the unholy trinity of the intelligence community, the corporate press, and big tech. But today's admission by the New York Times that this archive and the emails in it were real all along proves that a gigantic fraud was perpetrated on perpetrated by rather <clears throat> the country's most powerful institutions. And he says what matters far more than the interest level of various partisan factions is the core truths about U.S. democracy revealed by this tawdry spectacle. So if you were one of the ones who was suspicious, let's just say you're, you're being vindicated as we speak. Now the bigger question is, okay, so what's going to change? Anything? I don't know. But if you had any doubts about withdrawing your consent from the media or from the ruling class, seems to me you're a lot more justified. This is The Brian Hyde Show.